Um, so what, that seems like a good transition to get into the 1956 American edition, which I know is one that you, the, the, the preface to that is just like, it's gold. I mean, you, someone could really just read that yeah. and marinate on it for quite a while. Um, so tell me about like, what was your reaction reading that re-release for the American audience in 1956, you know, 12 years after the original, um, you know, how that, how that hit you so much. And, and again, maybe remind people what I'm talking about. Man. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, he, he, and I don't remember if you went through this before, but he had a, he had a hard time getting this published in America. Um, yep. I mean, already, you know, in Europe, they didn't think it would be this, this great seller that they ought to be more academic and, you know, to have more of a niche audience, but you know, in America, he's like, all right, maybe there's there's an audience here for it. Maybe these people can learn because, you know, America tends to just lag behind, you know, uh, Western European countries, especially England. So it's it's good to get him the information now. And the amazing part was some of the the stuff he said is ring so true today oh, in our kind of it does. sometimes our behavior uh, towards certain things, you know. Um, like I mentioned before, they just wanted to change the the name, the the title of the book, and and just seeing that would have been um, a way to just be a headline grabber. And all right, you don't have to read the rest of this book. Um, you just you got the headline there. You already know if you like it or you don't like it. And that's what a lot of the reviews were kind of you know in that order. Um, so you know it's it just kind of. Uh, he even mentioned it in one quote I don't even have written down that that uh, information I believe in, information or opinion moves fast in America. Yep, it just it just moves faster than it does anywhere else, and that that I mean still rings true today. I mean we are a culture that just you know read the front page, read the title, and, and move on. You know that's all the information I need. So I think you know his it wasn't really predictions, but it's more of his observations of America as compared to all the other places he lived around Europe. Um, was extremely insightful and, you know, still in a lot of cases rings true today. So I thought that that was the first thing that just popped out at me. It's like, oh, wow. Uh, you know, he's, he's got us kind of pinned down there. So there's certainly changes that we can make. Oh yeah. He, there's this quote from before. So they, they had that before the American version, the British version was re published in, in America um, and he was corresponding with a guy in the United States uh, on that on that topic. And a quote from the dude he was corresponding with, I forgot what his name was, said, uh, if you talk with if uh, so th the preface is. This is how Hayek realized that because he, you know, he was pretty detached from what's going on in the United States. You know, he didn't know. And so through correspondence with this dude who was trying to get his stuff published in the U.S., he realizes that the book was probably needed in the United States as well as Great Britain. And here's a quote that this dude sent in a letter to Hayek. Um, if you talk with people here, people over, I'll start again. If you talk here with people over 40 years of age, except Hansen, Hansen was a socialist like uh, economist who was an advocate of central planning and socialism in the US. So if you talk here with people over 40 years of age, except Hansen, they sound sane and relatively conservative. It is a generation brought up by Keynes and Hansen, which is blind to the political implications of their economic views. So let's see if we can map that onto today. Uh, basically, people that are old enough to remember this shit um, know better, with a few exceptions, you know, the people who understand it. But there's this, maybe if a generation was raised on the idea that Bernie Sanders is a hero and socialism just means 
roads and uh, and a police force and fire department, which is what I was what I understood as recent as maybe even six years ago. Um, then yeah, you don't understand the implications of your political ideology and your economic views. And so he's saying it's a younger generation that's propagandized into this shit that they don't realize what they're buying into and what they're advocating for. Um, and so you have to be aware of that. Yeah. But yeah, I thought that um, was super interesting. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I think, you know, especially kind of assessing the breakdown of, of, you know, how this is received in, in the different countries. Um, you know, it's just interesting, but but I, th I like the way he breaks it down because he refuses, just like he refuses to believe that, you know, fascism became popular in Germany. It wasn't because of German people. It was because of the ideas yep. they had at the time. And he tries to play what this game really, really honestly. Right. And so when it came down to the reception in America and, and a lot of this reception stuff, I mean, this is like as the, the book's coming out. So it's being sent to critics and the critics are the ones that are kind of letting them know, you know, how well this can be received. And also, you know, the British version, which is going to be a little different. Um, and yeah, talk about you know, that. This uh, is interesting. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, the quote I, I pulled out here is, you know, when you're talking about um, the, the this differences and how it was received, he says, uh, it, it seems hardly likely that this extraordinary difference in reception of the book on the two sides of the Atlantic is entirely due to a difference in national temperament. I have since become increasingly convinced that the explanation must lie in the difference of intellectual uh, situation at the time when it arrived. I was writing about the phenomena of, of which almost all my European readers had had some more or less experience, and I was merely arguing system, systematically and consistently what many uh, had already intuitively felt. So the thing here was in Europe, they, they've experienced it. And, it, you know, experience isn't everything, but it, it certainly helps you understand and, and helps you kind of gain traction yep. there. But so he goes on to say, in the United States, on the other hand, these ideals were still fresh. Uh, it was only 10 or 15 years earlier, not 40 or 50, as in England, that a large part of the, uh, the intelligentsia had caught up had caught the infection is what he calls the infection. Yeah. And in spite of the experimentation with the new deal, which happened was in like 1933, um, their enthusiasm, enthusiasm for a new kind of rational constructed society was largely still unsoiled by practical experience. So he kind of sat back and realized these people, I mean, it's like talking, it's talking to a 40 year old person who has experiences in the world already and then going to you know a 12 year old kid and trying to explain the same thing they're, they're not going to receive it the same way just because they've already had one's had this experience and one's going to be a bit more naive because they haven't been on the planet as long right they haven't experienced the world as long so they don't understand it as much and he was able to kind of simply you know and it really does help you find future trends to to say all right you haven't experienced this but your your intelligentsia is still pushing it like it's something that could be useful in the future or in england they're like okay i lived through that i don't want to live through yep. that so i'm not going to advocate for that kind of policy anymore so you know i thought you know it's a passage like this was super insightful and him you know stepping back and not saying oh those stupid americans it was you know these guys you know they're younger uh, they haven't had, you know, there's a whole ocean separating them from this idea. And it takes a while for even an idea to, to pass through an ocean and even that, that experience to, to let these people know, hey, the, it was really bad when we tried it over here. 
don't go down that route. And I just thought it was, it was very, uh, you know, it was great observation by him rather than just dismissing it. Yep. There's this, I have another quote from uh, the American release 1956. Do you care if I read that? We can kind of talk about it for a little bit. Yeah. So one thing that I, I think Kevin hit on it, even at the beginning, whenever he said, you know, only in America or how American is that? Like, is you'll see that, I mean, 1956 was, was what, 65 years ago. So it wasn't that long ago. Um, and so the trends, the, I mean, especially if you think factor human nature into this and, you know, it, it's still relevant. And so just think about how th- these are, these are the quotes from Hayek that, just blow my mind and I'm not being like hyperbolic or anything like that, but this is the stuff. And again, we're not even into the damn book, but that why this is so prescient and so relevant for today. So he's writing to his American audience in 1956. Um, and this is a forward or an excerpt from that forward. He says, even more than at the time when I wrote this book, the advocacy for policies that in the long run, cannot be reconciled with the preservation of a free society is no longer a party matter. That hodgepodge of ill-assembled and often inconsistent ideals, which under the name of the welfare state, has largely replaced socialism as the goal of the reformers, needs very careful sorting out if its results are not to be similar to those those of full-fledged socialism. This is not to say that some of its aims are not both practicable and laudable, but there are many ways we can work toward the same goal. And in the present state of opinion, there is some danger that our impatience for quick results, presidential executive order, may lead us to choose instruments which, though perhaps more efficient for achieving the particular ends, are not compatible with the preservation of a free society. The increasing tendency to rely on administrative coercion and discrimination, where a modification of the general rules of law might, perhaps more slowly, achieve the same object, and to resort to direct state controls or to the creation of monopolistic institutions, where judicious use of financial inducements might invoke spontaneous efforts, is still a powerful legacy of the socialist period, which is likely to influence policy for a long time to come. So just to let's pack that or unpack it and and then recondense it he's saying look the word socialism might not be what people are throwing around but the welfare state and this increasingly bloated government bureaucracy to circumvent like slow gradual change and to just rely on these quick fixes um it's not compatible with a free society and it's going to and this is the idea of just having rule by bureaucracies, unelected officials, this is a, a holdover of socialism and it will have an impact and influence us at, in decades to come um, because once this stuff is in there, there's a quote in the initial introduction uh, of the first release where he's like, this is a road that the longer you walk down it, the harder it is to turn back when it comes to these policies. And so that's what he's talking about here in this 1956 edition, again, he's been in the U.S. And this is in the same vein. I mentioned the Civil Rights Act earlier. Um, and I know it might be controversial to say, but there are parts of the Civil Rights Act that are probably not constitutional and not correct because it, the Civil Rights Act got rid of 
freedom of association and the and the idea of private property that you can do what you want with. Um, and so there obviously were parts of it that were necessary for sure, for sure, of course. Um, but Hayek was noticing that some of the arguments were going too far in terms of how they would permanently curtail liberty. Um, and that's exactly what happened. And there's a quote that I'll, I'll read once we get to the 76 edition um, that speaks exactly to that. Um, but, but yeah, I thought that quote there where he's like, there's this idea of we're just going to have these bureaucracies. Like we might, socialism might not be the word, but it's the welfare state. It's the exact same. And these bloated bureaucracies, it, this is the exact same. It's just under a different vernacular. And I think you had mentioned something earlier, maybe before we recorded um, about how the wording might change or they might try to revivify it or put it under different terminology. I think there was a quote you actually had um, about that, but uh, that, that speaks to that exact same thing where, where he understood that people were going to rebrand this stuff and then try to whitewash it, um, which is exactly what, what we're seeing today and what we have seen for a while now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I had that quote up here, but there's also a quote um, from the 76 version that almost mimics exactly what you said there. And Hayek was not a guy who tended to just repeat himself. So what that tells me is between 56 and 76, this had to be repeated. Yep. You no know, one listened the, the first time. I'm thinking about this, yep. it's like, oh, uh, yeah, it's like you gotta, you gotta keep listening, or they're they're pushing it harder because you know I think if we get to like that quote, I think it's gonna become obvious. But, but just in his in his uh, understanding of of people trying to reuse it, especially when they're further away from it, don't have the experience. You know, people people weren't using the word socialism for a while. It was a dirty word up till I mean a couple of years ago. I feel like right, and I mean yep. it became only more acceptable in the last like. And it was a democratic socialism with Hayek, um, which Hayek also wrote about the the yeah, complete un unworkability yes. <laughs> of democratic socialism. Yeah, it's it's crazy. Yeah, anyway, sorry. Um, but yeah, yeah, to to go down the road of of just re reusing the word. A quote uh, um, from the 56 version is the century of socialism in this sense, in the sense he was talking about, you know, throughout the beginning of the book in the sense of, you know, nationalization of industry uh, probably came to end around 1948. So shortly after the war, European, you know, Europe experienced it. They're like, no, thank you. Uh, we're going to end the socialism for a while. Uh, and then he said attempts will no doubt be made to rescue the name for movements which are less dogmatic, less doctrinaire and less systematic. He understands already that this is going to be re revived somehow, uh, but he said, uh, but in art, but in, but an argument applicable solely against those clear cut concepts of social reform, which characterize the socialist movements of the past might today well appear as tilting against windmills. So, you know, I had to look up the, the, the phrase tilting against windmills. I've never really heard of that before. It's a British saying it means like you're attacking a problem or an enemy that isn't real or yep. not there anymore. It's a Don Quixote. Um, it's, it's a, you know, and that Don Quixote. Yeah. Man of yeah, I've, never, I've never watched that episode of Star Wars. He fought windmills pretending um, they're dry. But, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Um, cool. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that, that I mean, that's the point, though. It's like you're, they're trying to it's almost like a, a version of gaslighting to me, you know, an early version of that. That's saying, like, you're, you're fighting this thing that's not there. So don't worry about it. Yep. And to me, that's a great way to to devalue the word of it or, or erase its past and then use it moving forward. I mean, they're using everything but the word planning explicitly to do, uh, you yep. know, what they want. And this is, is extremely uh, applicable in the United States where. Um, you know, terminology, I mean, he's talking about terminology in general, isn't the same across the Atlantic Ocean. I mean, we, we, we say words that mean different 
that have different meanings, you know, in England. And that makes a big difference. And I think one of the words, unless you want to, to stay on this topic, I think, you know, well, you should another, finish that uh, quote. very important quote. There's a whole bunch. Do of I have the rest of the quote written down? Well, you, you expand that pretty good during our pre-call, but, but I mean, if you want to expand on that, cause I'm, I'm getting to something somewhat new uh, or different. No, 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 You're going well, to get, get to we'll get, we'll get to this stuff. Liberal. You're good. Yeah. Yeah. But I'll get to the, the liberal quote, which I think to me, and you mean both of us, I think gravitated toward this quote because it was just hilarious how it was yep. used. And basically he's talking about how, you know, again, words are, are mean different things. And he's talking about the word liberal, which is I mean, he, he uses liberalism about a million times throughout this book. And it's extremely important to understand it in the way he understands it, because if you're an American and you, you know, this is one of your first books you read on economics or politics, you, you might think he's, I mean, he makes it pretty clear as to what he, he means by it, but you might be thinking something completely different because the way we use it in America is, is yep. not even close to the way it's actually supposed to be used. So the quote is, I use throughout the term liberal in the origin or original 19th century sense in which it's still current in Britain. In current America, which is what I explained, you know, liberal principles, meaning you, you allow people um, to, to act freely, especially in the market, where in a, a planned market, a planned economy, you can't do that, right? It's, it's naturally a liberal. But he said, in current American usage, it often means very nearly the opposite of this, which I already sound funny. It already sounds funny, and it, it's something that a lot of us, you know, against progressivism have, have been calling out for a long time, especially when people use it incorrectly. Uh, he goes on to say, it has been a part of a camouflage of leftish movements in this country helped by the muddle-headedness of many who really believe in liberty, that liberal has come to mean advocacy for of almost any kind of government control. This is where it is the exact opposite, yep. right? That in liberal in Europe, that yep. does not yep. mean any sort of government control. And now, you know, the yep. conservatives use the word libtard because they're they're trying to you know, basically take everyone's money via taxes and redistribute it out. I mean, even that term is stupid uh, because that doesn't, I mean, in, in, in terms of a real liberal, you know, that's not what that means. You know, when he talks about the liberal in the 19th century sense, it means the exact opposite of that. Uh, he goes on to say, I'm puzzled by why those in the United States who truly believe in liberty should not only have allowed the left to appropriate this almost indispensable term, but should have even assisted by beginning to use it themselves, a term of opprobrium. This seems particularly regrettable because of the consequent, the consequent tendency of many liberals to describe themselves as conservatives. Now, I don't know if any of you have yep. you know, watched us talk before, but I'm a self-described conservative because of this exact same thing. And I've mentioned several times yep. that if we use the word liberal the way it's appropriately supposed to be used, I'd probably call myself a liberal, but I can't yep. anymore. That's why Dave right? Rubin says classical liberal. Exactly. He keeps labeling a classical liberal. I'm like, you're a conservative now because you're conservative because you're trying to conserve real liberalism. That is why conservative yep. is really meant that way. Uh, where conservative, I mean, the paragraph paragraph after this, which I haven't had written down, uh, Hayek ten, uh, goes off on conservatives as to why you know conservatism is a bad thing. But again, it means something different uh, in in Europe yep. than it does in the United States. So it all depends on what you're conserving. But but I think it's amazing to me how he calls out in 56 the the use. Because I didn't know at what point, you know, classical liberal, yeah. classical since when? Because apparently in 56 didn't mean what it was supposed to mean. So, you know, uh, we, we need to make sure we use our terms appropriately. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. Uh, and that's where I think actually I saw Dave yesterday in a thing that he did call himself. He said, I'm basically a conservative, but not, you know, only because. 
of what the left has done. And that's why you did classical liberal. Um, but yeah, and, and in the next passage on conservatism, he's like, look, you need this in a functioning society, but it has its pathologies too. But his main point was, why would you do this to this word? This is a necessary word because the, the ethics that it is, uh, that it revolves around are like the foundation of Western society. And so we have, like, you can't just let this go. You can't just be willing to let this go. Um, and so, yeah, no, I thought that that was great as well. The, the only thing I was thinking of earlier about the extension of that quote, where he, in the, uh, I think it was the 56 or 70, yeah, it was 56, where he said, people might think, well, socialism's dead, so what's the point? And this is like the same as fighting windmills. Um, he said, he goes on to say, not, or he not only says that people are going to try and revive this thing, but also that they're going to they're going to rebrand it under different terminology. They're going to come up with different words, and it's going to mean the same thing. Um, and I can't remember what the rest of it. I thought I had it written down, but I think I just happened to have just listened to it whenever we talked about it earlier. But we'll we'll get more into that. But again, democratic socialism is one of the things that he rails on in that in the fifty six and then the seventy six version. Uh, do you want to get into the the seventy six re release and then we can kind of wrap it up? Um, sure. We're already over an hour, but you know, as long as we don't go over an hour and a half, I think we'll, we'll probably be okay. It's hilarious we're not even into the book yet. Um, yeah. So. Yes, that's why uh, uh, our original plan was definitely to partition this out. Oh yeah. I mean, again, we're covering a third of the book, so I hope sure. this is gonna this actually is the slowest part. Said. So um, we'll see. Well, I, I just want to read this one quote, and then you can go off however you want to go. Um, but so one of the things that Hayek wrote in 1973, before the 76 re-release, was uh, something called "Law, Legislation, and Liberty," um, and this is an excerpt from the introduction that mentions law, legislation, liberty again, 1973. Uh, quote, Hayek lamented how Western democracies were increasingly circumventing the spirit of liberal, and I'm glad you expanded on what he means with liberal, um, uh, the spirit of liberal constitutionalism by passing coercive legislation, typically under the guise of achieving social justice, but in reality serving well-organized coalitions of special interests. So this is 1973 uh, where he's writing this. And so again, so the 56 version- Six. Uh, or sorry, no, no, law, legislation, liberty is 73. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. So, so in, in 56, he's saying, hey, I'm seeing these arguments for these bureaucracies. I'm seeing these arguments for cutting corners that are not compatible with liberty. We need to be aware of this. We need to be careful. And then in 73, he writes this thing, law, legislation, liberty, because he's, he's not too far off. I mean, he's, uh, I guess, nine years out from the Civil Rights Act, and he saw probably some of the consequences of that, you know, and for people who don't know, the Civil Rights Act had lots of things that they said weren't going to, they weren't going to do things like busing. They weren't going to do quotas. They weren't going to do these kinds of things. They weren't going to do affirmative action. Um, all the advocates of it laughed whenever people said, well, this is going to lead to busing. This is going to lead to affirmative action. This is going to lead to quotas. And they were mocked, openly mocked and ridiculed. And that's exactly what happened in less than 10 years. Those are the things they were doing. And so Hayek, said, okay, I was trying to warn about this in 56. So then now in 73, he's writing like, okay, they're doing these things that are under the guise of social justice, sound familiar, but actually they're just coercive, circumventing liberty, and it's just serving these special interests. You know, all of this diversity, equity, inclusion stuff, it's a racket. It's just serving, um, it, it's a racket. You know, the BLM, one of the founders, you know, just bought like what that huge mansion uh, that was in the news a couple months ago. 
Uh, and so then my theory is I think he wrote that in 73 and he was like, we just need to, cause he's talked about doing expanding on road to serfdom. And he said, I could never do it. I couldn't do it. I tried, I could never do it. And so I think one of the things, you know, he was writing these other things that were trying to warn people about this stuff and to listen to him. And my theory is that in 76, he thought, Hey, look, it's the 20th anniversary of the American version. Let's re-release it because these people need to pay attention to what we're doing. You know, it, it's, this is not that far. So, I mean, we had, you know, the, the, the um, Supreme Court in this era was an activist court. It's the Earl Warren Court. That's where we got Roe v. Wade out of, again, for example, which was just completely bonkers from a constitutional or from, you know, if you interpret the Constitution uh, appropriately. And so he's just seeing the way bureaucracy is running amok. Um, in the U.S. And so I think that's why they did the re-release in 76. I mean, I don't know what you think, Kevin, but I think, again, it was, yeah. you know, if, uh, if, if, if my kid's outside and I say, hey, come in, it's time for lunch. And she comes in the first time I ask, I don't need to repeat myself. But if she stays out there, you know, I'm going to keep repeating myself and I'm going to get involved until I get her to come inside and so I think Hayek was doing the same thing. It's like I said earlier, this isn't beating a dead horse. He's like, people just aren't listening. And I'm just trying to get you to listen. I'm repeating myself because you didn't hear me the first time clearly. Um, and, and so that, that's my theory on the 76 one. I mean, I don't yeah. know what you think, but it, it seems yeah. arbitrary. I mean, I think, yeah. I mean, there's a, a purpose why he picked the 20th anniversary of the, the American paperback copy edition. Um, mm. it, it was exactly that. It was him calling his daughter to come in the house for the fifth time and be like, come on, you, you have to kind of look at what we're doing here. And they're changing the language here. They're, they're trying to change what everything's about. But but you're you're either going down the road 100 miles an hour or you're going down 50 miles an hour or you're going down 20 miles an hour. Either way, under you just at least need to understand that you're going down the road. And that's yep. why I, I pulled two quotes out of here. One of them was very, very similar to the one you quoted in 56 about uh, the change in the definition of socialism, how it operates. I mean, really, he, he wrote at the time that socialism meant unambiguously the nationalization of the means of production and central economic planning, where now socialism, socialism has uh, come to chiefly mean the extensive redistribution of incomes through taxation and institutions of the welfare state. Mm -hmm. And then he goes on to say, I believe that the ultimate outcome tends to be the tends to be very much the same, although the process by which it is brought on is not quite the same as described in this book. So he gives enough room to those people to say, all right, like you're clearly not flying down the freeway, but like understand you're on the freeway. Yep. That is the most important part. And there's another uh, quote that he goes on just to, to get through quickly is and it was one of the criticisms actually of the book is like when you change the definition of this you can criticize and say well that's not what's happening here so socialism we're not we're trying to nationalize everything we're just you know taking care of the the poorest among us really that's kind of how the argument goes and, and his response to that feedback was it was frequently been alleged that i that i have contended that any movement in the direction of socialism is bound to lead to totalitarianism even though this danger exists this is not what the book says what it contains is a warning that unless we mend the principles of our policy, some very unpleasant consequences will follow, which most of those who advocate for these policies do not want. Mm. It is you understanding. It's that, that trade-off game we always talk about. You know, Thomas Sowell is always fond of saying there's no such thing as a solution. There are only trade-offs, especially in economics. Every single thing you do is going to have a negative trade-off 
that you're not going to like. So you need to at least recognize and say, you know what, this is something undesirable, but maybe, you know, the progress we make is, is worth it, worth that trade off. And it is just getting those people to understand that if you redistribute income and you say these these wealthy elites, you know, the 1% who owns, you know, whatever percent of, of GDP uh, or, you know, whatever percent of, of the wealth in America, we need to tax them. It's like, okay, you can do that, but understand the trade-off you have here and understand the way you're going, especially when the trade-off comes with, you're not going to quite accomplish what you want to accomplish. So you're going to say, all right, a little bit more power, a little bit less liberalism in, in its true sense. It's all we need to accomplish this thing to, to bring out more equal outcomes. It's all we need for a policy. And I think it's important to understand that even people who truly believe what they are doing in their rights and really want yes. to help people, even though those people with the best of intentions, they need to understand the road they're going down. And like you said, there's a, there's a certain point in the road where you can't stop going down it anymore. You can't reverse, yep. you know, it's, it's a one lane road and you can't just make a U-turn at any point. So it's important just at least to understand that you're going down. it. Yep. Like he said in the, the 56, when he said they're, or that, yeah, the 56, they're blind to the implications of their ideas. And there's this quote in the introduction, really all I had from the original introduction I, I, I mentioned a lot of it earlier, um, you know, about how he said like that he wasn't, he didn't think Great Britain and the U.S. represented Germany during Nazi Germany, but how it was representing Germany 20 years prior um, and so on. And how, you know, though the road is long, it is one that becomes more difficult to turn back as one advances. Um, but the, the quote that I it's kind of wanted that all this is all I have is he says, we are the captives of the ideas we have created. And I think that really encapsulates a lot of what he's talking about. Again, he talks about the intelligentsia, intelligentsia and these intellectuals um, and this class of people that I think lacks the humility and the self-awareness um, to be adequately self-critical and self-doubting um, to, to, to turn back from that road or even ask, am I going the right way or where is this going um, until it's too late? And I think one of the things that um, he talks about in this book, and I think also Hoffer writes about is that all these people who are well-intentioned, once they implement the revolution and they realize what's required, they won't do it. I mean, like I said earlier, Hayek's main point was that the maintenance of socialism requires methods and means that socialists aren't comfortable with. And I think one of the points that Hayek, I think he uses the example later on the book of like a town executioner or something or torture um, and, and Hoffer writes about it also is that what ends up happening is that the most awful people rise to the top of these newly created power hierarchies because the well-intentioned revolutionaries won't do it. They're like, oh, this is not what I had in mind, um, but it, you're there. And so then with the momentum, the worst of the worst rise to the top. And so that's what Hayek was trying to warn them against. Like you said, these well-intentioned people, they just don't know. Um, they just don't know uh, what, they're, what they're going down. And so, yeah, I mean, I don't know if I have anything else to add to everything we talked about other than, than you know, I think the reason why we go through all of these introduction is, is to, you know, highlight a few points. One is the enduring and pressing nature of this book in terms of its ideas and it's and really it's warning for the consequences of ideas i think that uh, what was his name caldwell the guy who was the editor of this definitive edition um talked about that at the end of his introduction uh you know actually he even quoted uh Keynes, i think it was um where he talked about the 
the power and the enduring nature of ideas. And that's what Hayek was trying to warn people about is that ideas have consequences. Um, you might not know, and those consequences aren't necessarily related to your intentions. Um, and you at least should be aware of the consequences and the logical progression of your ideas um, if you're going to continue to advocate for them. And we actually have some historical examples of where these ideas have led before. Um, and, you know, Hayek, what, one of the things he was saying, and we didn't get to it, and I think we'll talk about the criticisms later on, um, was he does address, you know, people going, well, how come Great Britain's not Nazi Germany? And how come the U.S. isn't Nazi Germany? And he talks about that. Um, and he has a very good explanation. I don't want to get into it right now um, uh, because I think it warrants, you know, maybe even in a whole episode as I think about it um, for us to talk about uh, just how the, the time progression of ideas and how they advance um, in, uh, you know, liberal and as Hayek meant it, you know, liberal societies. Um, so yeah, I'm just really excited, man. I mean, I don't know, uh, you know, if there's anything else that I have really to add other than this is relevant, it's important, it's a warning and everything it, it, here actually is the last thing I'll say is, is that everything he said then is relevant. And I think even if Hayek were alive today, he'd be like, no, it's still relevant. Here's a through line of everything I was talking about. Like from here to here, to here, to here, to here, here's all the stops he made. Here's all the detours, you know, it's a road. You're just farther down the road. And like he said in that introduction, the road might be long. And he even said, we're, we're way behind. Great Britain and the United States are way behind where Germany was before it went down the road of Nazism. But even if you're walking at a slow pace, like you said earlier, you get there eventually. Um, and so I, I, I think that reading it and talking about it now, it, I would say, I would argue it's, it's more important and more relevant now because we're farther down the road. We're farther down the road. Um, and I don't know. Farther I mean, I use the same admit. example with the, totally. I use the same example with the watchman threshold. I don't know where we're at, but the, the point I use is that if I'm trying to, if I'm where I am right now and I'm trying to get to the Pacific ocean, I don't necessarily need to know where I am. I just need to start going West and I can travel for however long. I don't need to know, you know, am I in Nevada? Am I in Idaho? Am I in Washington? You know, where am I? I don't know. All I need to know is if, if I'm going west, I'm going to hit there eventually. And, and that's what Hayek's point is, is he's like, you go down these, you're going to hit it eventually. And the fact that we've had so much time pass between these, and especially since the re releases, and again, I think there's reasons why someone like Milton Friedman would be like, hey, let me write a forward for a re-release in the 90s, right? And these guys are writing this definitive edition with all this other stuff in 2007. It's like, we're farther down the road. We don't know where we're at. We might be in the Bay Area. We don't know how close we are to the Pacific, but we're getting there. We're closer than we were yesterday. So people need to start paying attention. Um, and so I'm just excited to, to do this and to unpack this stuff and for people to see why this is such a freaking mind blowing, but I mean, it just is. And I, and I really, a lot of times I would add the kind of asterisk stuff. I don't want to overhype it. You know, I'm, I'll do those movies and TV shows and sometimes with books even, but with this one, I don't think I can, I don't think there's a way in which, I mean, especially, I mean, you've heard me say these things before you read it. I mean, I don't think I'm overselling it. I mean, I think this really is that, I mean, you can tell me if you think otherwise, but but yeah, I'm just well, no, I, I called you. I, I, I called you after what, like chapter six of fifteen. I'm like, oh yeah, yep. like, you came to me with this project, and you're like, I think this would be fun to do. 
Uh, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, it seemed like I'd, I'd love to do that. I've done similar projects to this. And I'm like, all right, this sounds like an awesome book. And then, you know, we kind of left it as maybe how about you read the book and get back to me. And I'm like, you know, a third of the way through the book, uh, the actual meat of the book. And I'm just like, uh, yeah, let's let's plan this. Let's get this. Get this on the calendar right <laughs> yeah. Away. So I, I totally agree with you. Yeah. And I, I like the idea because the, the only quote that I really pulled from this, uh, the first edition uh, introduction uh, kind of went around uh, what I call. And I know you I don't think you necessarily believe this, but the, the way I believe good and evil kind of works is I don't think people are good and evil. I don't think their people can be good or evil. I think their ideas can be good and evil. And I think that the idea can sometimes a bad idea, especially can act as an infection. I mean, you've, you've seen uh, through some of the quotes we did. Uh, Hayek says it's infected these people mm-hmm. and they just, you know, don't know it yet. And, um, you know, the quote that I pulled here was something I already mentioned before is not to believe it'd be a mistake to say that the Germans are, are, they have this inherent defect that, that caused them to go down this road. It's not, it's the idea. And just to, to kind of paraphrase, uh, it, it, he said, it would be a mistake to believe that the specific German rather than the socialist element produced totalitarianism. Yeah. It would be an absolute mistake to say, we won't do this because we're not Germany. We won't do this because I'm not German or something like that. Yep. You know, you need to understand that everyone can go down this road and kind of like you, what you said before, it's like, is, you know, if it, if it were tried and I was at the head of it, I, I would do a great job. And, and someone like Jordan Peterson actually brings this out, you know, uh, very compassionately when he says uh, you were, if you were a German, you know, uh, a young man, especially, or even a, even a woman uh, in, in late, 1930s Germany and you don't think you'd be a Nazi or you don't think there's a good chance that you'd be a Nazi then you don't understand your own capacity Mm. uh, to do some of these evil evil things because you weren't there and you don't know how you'd be able to resist or if you think you could take Stalin's place you would have been completely different it's like well no other better people than Stalin tried to do that and they're the first people to get lined up and shot by the person who's going to take it over violently so I think it's very important to understand you know, it's the idea that we're talking about here is not the people necessarily. Totally. You need to understand the idea. And then the, the only other quote that I want to go back to, which is my favorite quote in this book. And it's it's good, especially if you are on one side of the political aisle or the other. You know, I consider mm. myself conservative. My favorite quote in the book is and he begins this and he was going to take it out. They wanted him to take it they out. Wanted him to take it out. And he said, he's no, like, no, I'm keeping yeah. it in there. And it is it's real simple to the socialists of all parties. Yep. That's just how it's a quote right at the beginning of the book. And it's brilliant because as we talked about, you know, I think a little bit on our live stream, you know, we have this left and right dynamic. It's really, it really doesn't matter. It's kind of that, the element on both sides who wants you to to look at the infighting here as they go behind the scenes and manipulate power over there. Consolidate the social, the people who want to control the people who want to plan they're on both sides of the aisle. They label themselves as conservatives, they label themselves as progressives, liberals, doesn't matter. It's people with bad intentions who think they can run your life better than you can. That's who you want to watch out for. And this this is what this book was here to warn you about. Yeah, the Patriot Act was the, was not the brainchild of progressives. Um, so, yeah. So, yeah. yeah, I think that's an excellent place to end it. Um, like we said, we'll probably do chapter one and two. And we're going to, you know, Kevin, I... I'm not a very consistent person, but I think we should try to do this once a week and get it out there for people because there's a lot here. There's a lot to, to digest and it's, it's very relevant. Um, and so be looking out for that. Um, and yeah, be sure to subscribe to Kevin Stuff Engineering Politics on uh, Locals, uh, engineeringpolitics.locals.com, um, ENG underscore politics on Twitter, uh, engineering politics on ThinkSpot, Medium, uh, YouTube, 
so on and so forth. I think we actually have an episode of our uh, that think tank we're in, Ember, uh, with James Darian and Carlin Borsenko. I think that episode just dropped or it's about to. Uh, so people need to check that out on Ember's Locals and uh, YouTube. Uh, for me, you can follow me on uh, Twitter, My Monday and Mind, Return to Reason.locals.com, Return to Reason on YouTube, um, and Medium and ThinkSpot and so on and so forth. We just did a ThinkSpot live stream. Hopefully, we'll do more of those. I had a freaking blast with that conversation, by the way, man. Um, and yeah. so I, I hope we, we can do more of those. Um, yeah, is there anything I missed, man, or, or, or are we good? You want to close this out? Uh Man, you're you're under you're underselling the excitement that I have uh, moving forward to, to cover this book because it's it's a great work um, and uh, I, I know anyone who listens to our materials is really gonna enjoy it so yeah. I'm, I'm pumped to keep going. Yeah, same, same. All right, we're well, we're excited to do it. I'm excited to do it. I this is it feels a little bit like uh, to me. I don't know if you like how much you like like different TV shows or movies, but like there's certain things that whenever I get to watch them or share them with people for the first time there's like a special delight like if someone's never seen fight club or like season one of true detective or something like that like getting to watch those or share those with people for the first time is like this special kind of thing and so that's that's a little bit how i feel like trying to finally get this out there with people with the road to serfdom is just like you know so it's I've, just a special thing i've never seen the first yeah i've never seen the first season of true detective so we'll do that we'll do our next series on that we'll just cover episode by episode okay i know you have hbo max we're going to talk about this after i stop recording um all right that's it uh thank you guys and uh i guess we'll check you next time peace